Well, it's been around three years that we've been reading a book together in the Gospel of Matthew, and what a gift this book has come. And I pray, my heart's prayer, our heart's prayer as your pastors, is that you'll never read this book the same again, that you will even take some of the tools that have been modeled for you and that we've exercised together in our sermons together, that you'll take these tools and apply them in your reading of some more of the books of the Bible, really of all the rest of the 66 books of the Bible. That you will dive into the Word of God and understand that Jesus is there and that He desires to teach you and He'll take you by the hand no matter where you are in your understanding, where you are in your faith, where you are in in your, your belief and your unbelief. He'll take you by the hand if you'll open the Word of God and allow God to have free access to your heart. And that you will take the Word of God and hold it to you as something very, very precious. And we praise God for preserving this Gospel of Matthew for us today. We have seen a view of Christ that is, that is unique and yet common, but unique and spectacular in the way in which Matthew holds such a high view of our Savior, Jesus Christ. What a gift this book has been to the Church of Jesus Christ throughout the ages. And I, like you, look forward to the day in which we get to see uh, our brother in Christ, Matthew, what a great experience that'll be to be able to, to speak with him and to learn what it was like to be at the feet of Christ and what it was like to be sent out into the nations and what it was like even to go as, as one who would give his life then in North Africa for the name of Jesus Christ. What it was like to have your life totally transformed from being a, a tax collector and really a scoundrel of society and, and really in many ways sort of a, uh, an antithesis or, or a an outcast from a normal Jewish traditional home, giving oneself over to this extortion of the Roman government, being a a tax collector, then from being that one who had invited all of his friends who are fellow conspirators amidst the the extortion of, of taxes among the neighborhood and the residents around, then to invite them to the table and then to to know Jesus is at the table and to see their lives change and and to find Matthew then would be a totally different person. In Matthew's life, we see people like you and I. Someone who is unworthy of the calling of Christ. Someone seemingly unequipped to follow Christ in faithfulness. And someone who stumbles and falls and even does not show up at that critical hour of Christ's arrest and trial. And yet God would use Matthew because he simply would continue to follow. He would get up from being from falling and he would get up and he would continue to follow. Because he would take and eat and he would watch and pray and he would go and tell. This morning we don't have a particular passage in the book of Matthew that that we'll be reading for the text of our sermon. But we'll be reading select texts, and there's so many of them that I'm going to move through our teaching time together uh, through this in a fairly fast pace. So you're welcome to follow with me in turning to the scripture passages, uh, but but I will keep moving through uh, the quotations as we move along. Would you pray with me as we begin our, our last sermon in the book of Matthew in this series? Heavenly Father, we want to be like Matthew. In the way in which we see Jesus, we want, to, we want your spirit to take us before the feet and before the face and by the side of Jesus to, to behold him, the king 
of kings and Lord of lords. We don't want to be stuck in mediocre land. We don't want to be stuck in in indifference. We want our lives transformed and changed by the renewing power of this risen Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we also pause and thank you for the faithful testimony of one of your one of your sons here, one of your disciples. Thank you for inspiring his word and spirit. Thank you for authoring this faithful testimony, this record of our risen Lord. Thank you for describing his wonderful works and his wonderful person in a way in which we could understand. And thank you for engaging us with the the miraculous power of truth, convicting our hearts and reproving and rebuking and instructing us and building in us a likeness unto Jesus Christ. And Father, thank you that we as a church get to read this wonderful book together, not just in the privacy of our our homes and our closets, but here in the midst, we get to fill up this place with the sound of the word of God and, and even together respond in varying ways, but in similar ways, in obedience to the calling of the Lordship of Jesus Christ on our lives. Father, we pray that you would bless and anoint this, this hour as very sacred unto you for your work. And I pray that I'll be faithful, like your son Matthew was faithful. Well, I thank you. Uh, I pray that you would use me to faithfully proclaim the word of Christ, that it would be clear, distinct, and it would be godly. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. On the back side of your bulletin is a suggested outline of the truths that we'll be covering this morning. But when Matthew began his gospel, he introduced the most significant character of all of human history, and really, without a doubt, the most controversial character in all of world history, that is, Jesus the Christ. Through 28 chapters, Matthew never took his eyes off of Jesus, and he drew the reader, you and I, to behold the birth, the life, the death, and the coming of life again of Jesus Christ. As people who respond to Jesus... As people who respond to his works and his claims, they fade into the background as he writes them in the story. The Spirit guides Matthew to write on the most astonishing and transformational books the world has ever read. All sorts of people and all responses are are recorded in this book. Most of the responses, as we have read, are negative including the not-so-positive portrayal of Matthew himself and the other 11 disciples. This book of Matthew, lest you become too familiar with it that you would ever have thought of this, but this book of Matthew is one of the most controversial books ever written by anyone on this planet. In part, because of the writing of this book, Matthew would be martyred in North Africa a few years later. The witness of Christ revealed in this book can only be intolerable or accepted. The book, as Matthew writes it, as God delivers it to us, demands a response. There are four invitations of Christ as Matthew records them in this great book. These four invitations leave no one the room to be indifferent about what they hear and what they read about the Christ. And I have found these four invitations to be somewhat of a, an umbrella or a skeleton or a structure for us to behold in our review as we leave the teaching of this Gospel of Matthew to, to move into other parts of the Scriptures. These four invitations of Christ will serve for us today as an outline, if you will, 
of the Gospel of Matthew. And as we look close uh, in this book for our Sunday preaching series, let's time to review, let's take time to review this book using these four invitations as our guide. And the first one is this come and follow. Come and follow. We've been given a new identity and a new purpose as disciples of Jesus Christ. Since it is Jesus who calls us, it's he who gets to define and direct us. When Matthew is called and when other disciples are called to come and follow, the word come is often left out of our English translations, but it is is certainly implied and helpful to be there. But when Jesus gave the invitation to follow him, it included the promise of change. He didn't say, come as you are and stay the same, but it was a promise of change. No person, by the, by the way, who has ever and truly entrusted themselves to the saving work and the lordship of Jesus Christ has ever remained the same. And by the way, this will be a theme that we're going to repeat throughout this sermon this morning, and that is that if these characteristics are true of you, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. But if these characteristics are not true of you, if they are not part of your life, then we are called upon by the Gospel of Matthew and by the Lord Jesus Christ to examine our lives and find, are we truly a disciple of Jesus Christ? Have we responded to the message that the Spirit has written through Matthew in the book of Matthew? So no one who has followed Jesus, no one has ever trusted themselves, is the same. They never remain the same. When Jesus called the disciples, he told them that the invitation demanded that they be changed into fishers of men. He was referring to the process of change where they would undergo over the next few years. This process took place with Jesus training them using a combination, as we would read through the book of Matthew, a combination of tools, including teaching and modeling and obviously even miracle, miraculous works. There were times that Jesus would tell parables to the crowd and then unpack them privately with the disciples. There were also times that he demonstrated traits that he wanted them to take on through his actions. One example was when he washed the disciples' feet, demonstrating the humility of what it would be like to be a servant leader. But we need to imitate the behavior and the characteristics of those we spend time with. We tend to do that. And when we enter into a discipling relationship with someone, we model for them. When we're discipling someone, we model for them what it looks like to spend time with them. And Jesus did that as he demonstrated his own character. We're reminded in Matthew 4, 18, that while Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, Matthew writes. And in Matthew 4.19, he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus, in Matthew's record of his own personal calling to follow Christ, in Matthew 9, 9. Matthew records, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. And there's seven times that Matthew records that Jesus summons those who are truly to live to follow 
me. Did you hear that? To truly live is to follow Jesus Christ. There's no other life, there's no other way to live than following Jesus Christ. In Matthew 8.22, Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Over and over, Jesus says, Come and follow me. In Matthew 10.38, And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. In Matthew 16, Jesus repeats, To his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. In Matthew 19, 21, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go and sell what you possess and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. In Matthew 19, Jesus again, you see, Jesus is calling people, come and follow me. And by the way, this, this invitation continues to this day to you and I, come follow me. In Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, who recognize that there is a master-disciple relationship portrayed that is very different than even what they were used to in that day. You say, in, the, in that time, when there was great rabbis and great teachers and great philosophers, followers would choose who they wanted to follow, very much like our celebrity culture today. You choose who you want to follow. But in the way in which Jesus commanded his disciples to follow follow him was not a way in which, "Ah, follow me, maybe not, maybe so. But Jesus was commanding them. The disciples' commitment was to 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 learn of him. And Jesus selected his own disciples and required absolute allegiance from them to himself. They will learn how to fish. Those who follow Jesus have the attitude of self-abandonment. You see, the call of Jesus, that is the rabbi to the disciples, that was contrary, that is contrasted to how it normally would go, was a call of the disciples to abandon everything about themselves. They would no longer be willing to, to be led by their own appetites and ambitions. And that's exactly where we are when we're not following Jesus Christ. We are following. We are being led. We're being self-led by our own ambitions and our appetites. These disciples and disciples of Christ are summoned to follow and find that in following Christ, there is the greatest joy and purpose. Come and follow is more of a command than it is an invitation. Come and follow is the promise of life. But once the disciple has been called, he now has a completely different appetite. And so we see in the second movement of the disciple, the second characteristic of a disciple is following Jesus. We find the command and the invitation, take, eat. In the world, in the ancient world, bread was seen as the most basic sustenance of man. It isn't far from our own culture, isn't it? When we have a snowstorm threat in town, what are the shelves empty from? Bread. I don't know what we do with all that bread, but we make sure we have bread. The steaks remain in the deli area, and all the fruit and the produce remains in the fresh section. But the bread shelves are empty. There's something about us as human beings that we relate to the sustenance and the the centrality, even just this this symbolism of bread itself. And the body needs the nourishment that bread brings. 
Bread can be seen figuratively as anything that can bring nourishment to the body. But don't be mistaken, it is quite literally the symbol for which Christ used to represent his body. Jesus told his disciples, and he tells us, reveals to us as his disciples, that we need Jesus more than we need bread. And he told his disciples frequently, and he referred to the higher calling of the disciple than to be satisfied with mere material things, even food itself. Yet God does care for us. And he does give us bread. He knows we have earthly temples and tabernacles. Jesus in Matthew 4, 4, when he was tempted by the devil, said, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ and you're not following him as your Lord and Savior, you cannot live by bread alone. You cannot. In Matthew 6:11, Jesus again speaks of bread and this time in terms of prayer. And it's modeled in the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Oh, God isn't so far removed that he doesn't know our immediate needs. And so he loves as a father to give us daily bread, quite literally our daily bread. And he gives us good gifts. As Matthew would continue to share the Lord's Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, 9, Jesus describes the heart of the hallowed father. And he describes it this way. Of, or which one of you, if his son would ask for bread, give him a stone, how much more will your father, who knows what you need, give you good things? In Matthew 9, Jesus dines with Matthew at his house with publicans and sinners eating bread. In Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. In Matthew 15, 26, the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and the disciples would like to shoo her away and Jesus looks down upon this woman and he says, what do I have in common with you who are a dog? And she pleads with him and brings up bread and says, but even the dogs will eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And sends her heart pleading, Jesus, unless you give me the bread of life, I cannot live. In Matthew 16, 7, Jesus is questioned by the disciples about having bread for the travels. And Jesus warns them of the leaven of the Pharisees. But perhaps most significantly, the most significant picture of bread, the most significant telling of the bread And I ask that you would turn with me there is in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, after Jesus has been using pictures of bread, has been eating bread with publicans and sinners and with disciples, and referring to bread in parables and talking about bread in prayer, now Jesus brings the bread that has been celebrated in the Passover meal. Maybe the the most pinnacle picture of bread. And he brings this bread into light, into the means 
of telling of what it is like when he is crucified. And now this bread that before has just been sustenance for our body and then a symbol of life, now it becomes a picture of the greatest story ever told, that is the broken body of our Savior and our risen Lord and the promise that his atoning sacrifice brings for lost sinners like you and I. And in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 30, Matthew records faithfully this telling, one more telling of bread. And this will be the last time that Matthew talks about bread. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. At this time, I'd like for us to, as disciples of Christ, to obey the commands of Christ. So would you prepare, please prepare your elements there. And first, the bread. And here we recognize, yes, this is mere bread. But this isn't the, the bread that was distributed to the 5,000, and it isn't the daily bread, and it isn't the bread that Jesus was hungry for in the wilderness. But this is the bread that symbolizes something even more wonderful. This bread brings to us forgiveness of sins, a guiltless standing before God. This bread reminds us of the living bread. No shelves empty with this Savior. Abundant in forgiveness, willing for reconciliation, selfless in sacrifice, Sufficient in atonement, this bread is full of everything your soul desires. And Jesus says, this is my body. Take and eat. Would you do so as a disciple of Christ? Preparing the cup. Jesus doesn't ask. He commands, in verse 27, to drink. You see, again, this is not disciples telling Master what to do. This is the Master telling disciples what to do. And it's the best thing you could ever do, to drink of Christ. To drink in the promises, to drink in the assurance of reconciliation, to drink in the seal of surety of eternal promise of salvation, to drink in knowing the presence, the abiding, and the eternal, unending presence of the risen Savior. Drink of it, he says. He doesn't ask. 
So we as disciples this morning join with the disciples in this day. We obey. Drink of it. And Father, we thank you for giving us bread. Not like the bread that fed the 5,000. Not like the bread that would have fed the hungry Christ in the wilderness. Not like the bread that Matthew ate at his table with publicans and sinners and Jesus. Not like the daily bread. Father, you have given us bread prepared with love and filled it with filled him with everything we would need and everything we would ever want. Father, thank you for the bread and thank you for the cup that reminds us of the blood that had been poured out on our behalf. Nothing less than the blood of Christ could have saved us from our sins, could have satisfied your holy demands. Thank you for the cup. Thank you for your son, Jesus, in his name. Amen. Take, eat, has even more than a corporate command to it. We just observed the taking and the obeying of the command to take and eat of Jesus together. But it, even as, as the application is, I feel a little bit loud. Did I change? Did the volume change a little bit? It extends, this command extends to the very walk of every disciple of Christ. We take and eat at the gathering of the body of Christ at the Lord's table, but we also, you and I also, are invited by Jesus as his disciples to be satisfied only in Jesus, to take and eat, to give our lives into discovering the fullness and satisfaction of every part of who he is and when what he has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. Take and eat. Experience Christ in the fullness of his presence his person, and his promises. Take and eat. Just as we take and eat our sumptuous and choicest foods at our dinner table, so too we are to constantly discover and enjoy the richness of Jesus' person and work by applying the gospel to our lives in a moment-by-moment way. We are to constantly take, eat, even as it is committed to observe the gospel when we gather as a church. Jesus is the one who has supplied to us the bread of life. No need to go anywhere else for that which our souls hunger for. Our souls hunger for renewal in forgiveness, comfort in sorrow, presence in loneliness, joy in hardship, courage in testing, Delight in the mundane. Our souls hunger for a new identity. We hunger for unconditional acceptance. We hunger for a million things. And Jesus says, I am all of that in bread. I am everything at every hour, at every moment that you need. Take, eat, eat of the gospel fruits that I have brought unto you. Take, eat. It's a command, but it's a joyful command. It's more than an invitation. It's greater than a summons. It brings life to know Jesus Christ. Take and eat. 
as the disciples learned what it was to be drawn to Christ so that he would be everything for them, they would learn to commune with Christ. Jesus, in the command to say, take and eat, is saying, yes, take of me, but commune with me. Commune with me. Be with me. Enjoy my presence. Know me. Sit with me a while. The disciples would learn that they would need to come to him in every struggling moment in the fallen world. Take and eat. Jesus taught the disciples how to engage with the heavenly. He modeled for them the Lord's Prayer, the primacy of the Father and his will and the approachableness of God, even for the slightest things like daily bread and and moment-by-moment forgiveness and cleansing. But even while abiding with Christ in his physical presence, the disciples struggled to pray to the Father. And in the last hours before Jesus was arrested, the disciples would not have the stamina of faith to commune with Christ and with the Father, seeking his mercy for the dramatic moments that were about ready to unfold, which we know, as Matthew would tell, to be the torture and the crucifixion of Jesus. So in the garden, Jesus commanded the disciples to watch and pray. It was a third invitation. It's the third summons that we find in Matthew to watch and pray. It was a third invitation to enter into the divine presence and fellowship with God. Do you see the communion that Jesus longs to have with his disciples? Do you hear the cry for communion in come and follow? Do you hear the compulsion of communion in take and eat? Do you hear the the command and the, the, uh, the summons to enjoy communion with the Father in watch and pray? This third invitation, this third command of Christ is to enter into divine presence and fellowship with the Lord in a very real way. Yes, in this was an open door for fellowship with the Trinity. But the disciples would sleep. They slept while he prayed. And that's exactly how Matthew records it. Matthew was sleeping. While Jesus was praying. Matthew didn't sugarcoat it for us in Matthew 26. But you see, that's a picture of the gospel too. Jesus intercedes while we are weak and helpless. Jesus prays when we're not. And he does the greatest thing when we're not. And in that moment, we see the gospel, our powerful Jesus interceding on behalf of his people, on behalf of his disciples, on behalf of the world. Jesus is interceding on our behalf while we are powerless for self-redemption. We are sleeping and he is redeeming. Watch and pray. And so in Matthew 26, please follow with me there to verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. And he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest. Later on, see the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Like come and follow, like take and eat. This too, watch and pray, was a summons of the Savior for what it is to be characteristic in the disciples' life. We never get past the follow. We never get past the take and eat. And we never get to a place where we shouldn't watch and pray. Did you hear that? We never get to a place where we should not be prayerful in spirit. A spirit of dependence is not just for the significant moments, but for the common. Not for the known only, but for the unknown. You see, the disciples, they could not have known. And even though Christ had in part revealed to them what was about ready to happen, he had not fully revealed to them in every moment what was about ready to unfold in the arrest and crucifixion of those dark hours. Yet Jesus knew what was taking place, and he commanded them to pray even though they did not know everything that was going on. And there's a chance that you and I don't know what's going on today. Just a slight chance that we don't know what God's doing today. We don't know what significant things He is working through His transformational grace, not only in our lives, but for the sake of Jesus' glory in all the world. There's just the possibility that you and I don't know what's going on. We can't fully know what God is doing in every moment as he accomplishes his powerful work in you and through you and around you. And so the invitation to watch and pray is for every disciple in every place at every time. It is the summons to participate in the holy work of God, bringing to him total dependence, fullness of thanksgiving and praise and humbling ourselves before his mighty person and power, acknowledging that there, it might quite be possible he's doing something great. And all he asks for us to do is to pray. It's an invitation to participate in the redemption work of the Trinity in a lost and fallen world. It's an invitation that is not to be rejected or set aside for a period of time, for we don't know what the Lord is up to. 
A disciple of Christ is always watching and praying because he knows his flesh is weak, but his Savior is strong. The fourth call of Christ upon the disciples this morning as we look at it in the Gospel of Matthew is go and tell. Go and tell. Go with him. Bringing others into the kingdom, but go with him. And this is a call to action. Not passive Christianity. It's called to active Christianity. The commands of Christ to go include bearing witness that Jesus is the Christ, both to the lost and to the saved. Yes, we proclaim Christ crucified even to those who are redeemed. We preach the gospel to ourselves and to the lost. Listen as Matthew records that the telling of the gospel is for everybody, whether they're lost or redeemed. In Matthew 11:4, John the Baptist doubts that Jesus is the Messiah, for Jesus had not yet accomplished everything that John had thought he would. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus and they inquire, is he the Messiah? And Jesus answered them in Matthew 11, 4, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Tell faithful John, the one who there has not been one greater born among women in all the world, in all world history than John the Baptist. And here is what we would call a strong believer. And still Jesus says, go and tell him the gospel. I am the Messiah. I am the one he was looking for, even though it has become a dark time for him. And so we preach the gospel to the saved. You and I preach the gospel. If someone will need to go to a fallen brother and preach the gospel. And based upon the gospel, offer help and hope and forgiveness. We learn this in Matthew 18 when we find an offending brother that needs to be restored. Restoration of a brother. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained a brother. Now, how is he your brother? He's your brother according to the gospel. As you come with the compulsion, you come with the the truth of the gospel, the forgiveness and grace of Jesus Christ to restore your brother, but you come with the gospel to your fallen brother. Matthew 18, 15. So tell tell the gospel. Not only to the great men like John the Baptist, and not only to erring brothers, but you tell the gospel. And you tell the gospel to not only to them, but you also tell it to the lost which we find later on in Matthew 28. But why do we tell the gospel so often? And why do we tell the gospel to just everybody that we know? Why do we live and thrive and breathe the gospel message? Because this, because listen, there are others who are going and telling a false gospel. Which makes the going of disciples all that much more critical. Remember, others are going with a false gospel into all the world. And if we aren't going, they still are. They are going with the power of worldly cunning and wisdom to lead others down the broad path that leads to destruction. They will be convincing and many will hear because they are going. We find then in the last chapters... Matthew 27, as Matthew 27 wraps up, Pilate wants to secure the tomb so that nobody would say that the body had been taken and that they would go and tell that he was risen from the dead. 
In Matthew 28, as Matthew, as the page turns in the last page of this wonderful book, we find an angel sitting on a tombstone. And angels and Jesus tell the Marys to go and tell the disciples. It would be a fearful task. Who would believe these women when they would tell them of the most outrageous report? Who would believe them when they would tell them that they saw an angel from heaven who spoke to them? Who would believe these women when they would tell them that the tomb was empty? Who would believe them that they fell at the feet of the risen Lord and worshipped him? And so in Matthew 28, 7, the go and tell. Angel tells Mary, then go quickly and tells disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you, go and tell. But Jesus stops them in their, in their path. In Matthew 28.10, Jesus speaks to the Marys and he says to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my, my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Who will believe your report? Who will believe my report of an empty tomb? We feel like the Marys going to tell the disciples. Who are we that we would have heard the angel? Who are we that we would have heard from Jesus? Who are we that we would have heard from the word of God? But by the power vested in us, by the one who holds all authority in triplet form, all authority from heaven, under heaven and under earth, we are sent to the nations to tell, listen, the most outrageous story ever told. God gave us the book of Matthew to know how to tell it. To know who to tell it to. And to know that we are mere weak disciples, just like his first ones. But that we will go like them with his abiding presence. And so as Matthew concludes in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, please follow along with me there. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are to go. We are to tell. And it's not our invitation. It's not our invitation that we're giving to people. It's his invitation. It's the greatest invitation to ever be delivered to mankind. Disciples are the ones who respond yes to all four invitations of Christ. They see the invitations as a joyful summons and they they give themselves to the delight of responding yes to every command of Christ. No disciple can say that he is following Christ who does not take and eat, who does not watch and pray, and who does not go and tell. The nations lay in dark, waiting the message of the light of the gospel. It will mean that eating, watching, praying, going and telling disciples bring them the message of the hope of the gospel. Now we as a church need to give ourselves to this task. 
This book was delivered to the church in Jerusalem before Matthew's departure to the nations. As a church, the church in Jerusalem needed to respond to the summons of Christ as they read the last words in the gospel that Matthew would write for them. We, this morning, God has delivered for us the gospel of Matthew. And we have spent three years in this book. We have searched out many of the words and surely still much more truth to be explored and applied. But we as a church have been trained and taught by the faithful Holy Spirit, by the word of God. Much like the church in Jerusalem who received the gospel of Matthew, we like them have received the gospel of Matthew. God has delivered it into our, into our church. And the question is, how will we respond as a church to the gospel of Matthew? How will we respond as the whole body of Christ, not just individual disciples, but as a corporate unified body? Will we give ourselves with abandonment to pursue Christ as our bread? as our leader, as our Lord, as our part of offering hope for the whole world. We can't respond rightly if we stay away. We can't respond rightly if we stay home, knowingly and willingly neglecting the fellowship and partnership in the gospel. We can't respond yes and find other things to do instead. We can't verbally respond yes, but find other things that are more important to us than ministering and worshiping and evangelizing the lost as a body of Christ. We will never get past our own doors if we never follow. Eat, watch, pray, go and tell together. I'm afraid as a church, we as Providence have become very complacent about the four calls of Christ. We're not alone in that. The church in Jerusalem, who had many, many had witnessed Jesus in in physical form. And they had, uh, many of them had even witnessed and sat underneath the the powerful teaching of the, the apostles and had seen even miraculous signs they too were still holding on to what was comfortable and what was convenient for them. And so Matthew would write a book for them. Like God has delivered this book to us. But God shook the church in Jerusalem. He shook the church and some of that through the means of the last verses of the book of Matthew. And he scattered the people of Jerusalem throughout the region and throughout the world so that today, because God shook Jerusalem, we in Westerville have the gospel because there were disciples who came and followed, took and ate, watched and prayed, went and told. The gospel doesn't stop here, friends. Brothers and sisters, the gospel doesn't stop here. Our desire as a church is to become a thriving place 
where God manifests his gospel in real and wonderful ways, so much so that our church grows in a way that another church is even born through us. And even more than that, and we've tasted some of the blessed fruit of which we feel unworthy and undeserving in being part of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Nisna, South Africa and partnering with the Stowe's. But we should desire that we should become such a church that catches the calls of Christ in a way that we become a planted church in Westerville that's healthy and reproducing because we're just living out the call of Christ in our life. And disciples are born because we just are acting like Christians. The Lord through his book, through this book of Matthew, is calling providence to these four callings. Will we obey? Or will we stay? Will we stay in our self-righteousness, believing the church doesn't need our involvement? Will we stay in our decisions that other things are more important than pursuing Christ and the body of Christ than the church? Will we stay in our decisions to hoard our gifts, to hoard our blessings so that we can build our own kingdom? Will we stay in our unbelief that God could change the world through Galileans like you and I? The world is waiting for our church to take these four callings more seriously. The Lord is waiting, and he's willing to let providence come and follow and take and eat and watch and pray and go and tell together as he looks upon us as his precious bride. I wonder, is there a chapter 29 for for, for providence? In the book of Matthew. What does chapter 29 look like for providence? If we hear the call of Christ, then surely it must be that Jesus is glorified in our midst and a church is built upon the gospel and people hear the good news both in the church and without the church. Let's pray.